Well, good morning again. It is great to have you worshiping with us this morning at Faith Bible Church. I pray that you all had a blessed Easter Sunday. Uh, for those of that you were here, I uh, pray that it was a blessing to you. For those of you that might have been traveling, I uh, pray that it was a blessing to you as well. Uh, the purpose of why I'm even saying that is we're now transitioning into the book of Hebrews. And what I want to do before we dive into today's message is kind of give you an understanding as to why. Over the past several weeks, we've been going through this one-to-one Find Your One series. We've been encouraging you about um, how we can trust the Bible, how reliable it is, who God is, who Christ is, who we are apart from Jesus Christ, why we need Christ, why Christ went to the cross. And then we culminated that, obviously, with Palm Sunday and Easter, recognizing that Christ went to the cross to forgive us of our sins so that we might have eternal life through him. And so now we're going to transition into the book of Hebrews, and some of you might be wondering why. Let me start off with this. How many of you are fans or have ever watched the Antique Road Show? Anybody like that? A couple of hands going up. Every once in a while, I'll admit, when I'm kind of just wanting to pass some time, I will get on and I'll watch this show. And interestingly enough, one of my favorite things to do is to watch people come forward with this story. And oftentimes the story is, you know, we bought this house or I was out cleaning my grandmother's attic and way tucked away back in this far distant corner, we found this insert, whatever it might be, okay? Um, This ring or we found this gun or we found this whatever. And so they take it forward and they discover its value. Now, how many of you love those shows where they begin to discover that what's been tucked away for maybe 50, 60, sometimes maybe 100 years is worth a lot of money? And they're sitting there and they're going, gosh, I had no idea of its value. Now, the other side of it, though, is you wonder to the people who once had it, Why did they tuck it away? Did they not understand the value that it had been given or that it would grow? So what does the Antique Roadshow have to do with this morning? Well, what I want to do is is we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. And the reason for that is for us to remember and recognize the immense value that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you're going to hear me say this often. You're probably going to get tired of me saying it. But it's so important for us to remember that in Jesus Christ, we have the best of the best, and therefore we can forget the rest. Why is that important? Because oftentimes when we come to Christ, we can understand and recognize what we've been given, but at times as we travel in life and as the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs of life begin to sort of come upon us, we can forget how great we have our lives in our risen Savior. To be honest with you, the reality of what was going on with the people of God was happening in the same way. The book of Hebrews was written in and around 60 AD to probably right before 70 AD. And the reason for that is the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and there's no inherent reference to its destruction in this book. Why is that important? Well, let's take it back for a minute to establish some context before we dive into today's message. Remember and recognize that Christ had come. He was born. We know that he's fully God and fully man. Christ came and he began saying things about him that were going to change the world. 
And then, as we know, as we celebrated this past Sunday, Christ went to the cross, died upon it, rose from the grave, triumphed over sin and death, and what we now understand is established this new covenant through his death and resurrection from the grave. Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and everybody said, something big is going on here. People began to realize that salvation was in Christ, and that this old sacrificial system, this old manner of religion that they had relied upon for centuries, was now obsolete, because Christ had come. But the problem was that a few years went by. And so if we time this correctly, we understand that Christ died about A.D. 30 to A.D. 32, which means that the separation from Christ's death and resurrection from the grave to when this book is written is only about 30 to maybe 35 years. And the people of God, the people who had begun following Christ, began to turn back to other systems of religion. They began to wonder and question, is Christ really all that we need? Is he good enough? Or should we turn to other things? And interestingly enough, we sit here and we say, well, gosh, we do that, don't we? Well, what about that? Let me ask you this. How often might we look to Christ but then check a horoscope? How often may we turn to Christ but then look at a tarot card? How often may we turn to Christ and kind of look and say, well, wait, maybe there's more. Maybe I just need a little bit more here, but I can't trust him wholly or fully. Or better yet, when we look at our salvation in Christ and the relationship that we have in him, do we look for other ways that we can feel or try to assure ourselves that we are approved by God other than solely Jesus, who is the one who died for our sins? This morning, we're going to travel through this book, and what we're going to discover is the author is writing, essentially, on a variety of different topics, saying, Christ is the best of the best. This morning, we're going to discover that he's better than angels. And to be honest with you right now, I'm going to say this. I hope and pray that he is better than angels and not angles, as I've written my sermon. I can't tell you how many times I had to spell check. I will tell you this. He is better than angles, but he's supposed to be better than angels. So I pray that that's all correct. But what I want to show you is this, okay? Our, the, the question we're asking is, are you sure that Jesus is all that I need? And what's interesting in that is oftentimes it's easy to say yes, but what about those hard times? What about those moments when life comes upon us and things that we haven't planned, things that we don't want, come before us and they change the trajectory of our life? And we're looking and we're saying, God, are you enough? Are you really what I can hold on to during this time? Because the life that I think that I should be having or the trajectory that I think my life should be going has completely taken a 180 and I don't know where to turn or what to do. Can I really trust you? And what I want to encourage you in as we travel through this book, we're going to discover, again as I've said, that Christ is the best of the best and that we can forget the rest. And my prayer for all of us in this is as we look at how great our Savior is, we will then firmly establish truly how we can trust him. 
And then interestingly enough, as the book transitions after establishing that fact, it says, now that we know this, how are we to live? How are we to go continuing forward? And then it encourages us to persevere. The latter part of this book is an encouragement to persevere in our faith, to continue trusting in Jesus Christ. When the world wants to come forward and say, are you sure he's good enough? Are you sure he's all you need? Are you sure that you can really trust him? Don't you want to add this or take away that? Shouldn't you put a little bit more here? Are you really sure that you want to singularly put all of your trust in Jesus Christ when the world's telling us to diversify our portfolio? And that's the whole purpose of this book. Interestingly enough, I want to read this to you. Um, The book of Hebrews exists to encourage our hearts to recognize that we have the best of the best in our Savior Jesus. Because of this, we do not need to turn to or add other systems of religion or worship to our lives. And don't miss this point. Over 25 times in this book, we are going to read the words better, more, or greater, all of which refer to the superiority of Jesus. The author is constantly saying, look at this, but look how much better Christ is. Look at how this was good, but Christ is the best. And it's an encouragement to all of us to realize truly what we have in him. And so this morning, as we travel through the first chapter of Hebrews, what we're going to see, what we're going to discover, and my hope for all of us is that we can come to recognize that Jesus is infinitely better than angels, and I pray that it's angels, not angles, because he is the divine prophet, priest, and king. It's not. It's angels. (laughs) He's better than angels. (laughs) It is angels. That too. See how superior he is? There goes my message. I'm done. Have a great Sunday. All right. Well, redirect. He's better than angels because he's the divine prophet, priest, and king. Now, why is that? What we have to see in this message and what we have to see that the author is writing is taking some moments as people are looking and turning back to an old system, thinking, you know what? Things are hard. Things aren't easy. Now watch this for a minute. Jesus has come. Jesus has died. He's risen from the grave. He's now seated at the right hand of the Father. The people are saying there is something amazing about Christ. But a few years go by. A decade goes by. Another decade goes by. And we're looking at probably 30 to 35 years that Christ has now been seated on the throne. And individuals are looking back and wondering, is this really the right thing? Is he really who he said he is? And people are turning back or adding things to what Christ has said. And so what we have to see and what the writer will say particularly is let's talk about this. Let's look at why we have the best of the best in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to take a minute. We're going to look and we're going to read through the entire chapter. And then what I'd like to do is break this down and help us to see truly what we have in Christ. 
In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by the powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now watch the transition, watch the comparison in these next following verses. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same. And your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Right here, the author is moving quickly to demonstrate who indeed Christ is. And he's making a direct comparison showing the superiority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we walk through this text, there's a few things that I want to do and I want to show you. The first two verses, really what's happening is the author, whom is unknown. Some speculate it's Paul, but others would say that most likely it was Barnabas. Some would attribute it to Apollos, and some even attribute it to Clement. But the bottom line is, we don't know who this author really is, but we know that the book is divinely inspired. So this individual is wanting to say, look, stop turning to other systems. Stop going back to the way that it was. And we look, and what we think about is, you know, why is that the case? Let me emphasize something for you for a moment. Don't call me a heretic, but for the last several thousand years, we have talked about Christ as our Savior. What if, now this is just making comparison, what if all of a sudden that changed? And now we were in a new system. Okay, something different. Christ wasn't Savior. But this is what we knew. This is what we had heard. You have to understand that these individuals had been under an Old Testament system and they were used to the sacrificial system. They were used to looking for prophets. They were used to what was there. And this was still new to them. 
And so after a long establishment of what was, they're now looking at what is. And so, well, please not calling me a heretic, there is no other than Christ, but I'm just trying to help you understand the context of what these people were looking at. What they had, they had become accustomed to. What they had been given in Christ was the best. But now life was getting tough and they were wondering, is this really what we should do? And so, in verses 1 and 2, the author is essentially saying this, that Jesus is better than angels because he is the divine prophet. Why is this important? Well, first and foremost, notice in the beginning it says, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. As we walk through the Old Testament, we recognize that there are moments when God will come and he will speak to people directly, but also he uses the prophets to speak his words. Notice also the reference, in the past. Don't miss that. In the past. This is done. This is over. This is behind us. This is no longer our present reality. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Centralized and localized. What the author is saying to all of the people is, look, back in the day, God spoke to us through a variety of different prophets. But today... Now, God speaks to us through his son. And notice this, in these last days. Isn't that interesting? Now, we can get very theological on this as to exactly what the reference is. But the overall idea behind this is to say there is no more coming. There is no more need for anyone else. We don't need to look for another prophet we have Jesus. Jesus has come. He has lived. He has died. He has risen from the grave. He is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And we need not look for any more. And so one of the things that I want to encourage us in is this. The idea of what the author is saying is that we can stop looking for additional prophets to reveal to us more about God. Notice that I put prophets in quotes. So often do we look for an added insight or something mysterious about the scriptures or something that isn't there, thinking that perhaps if we could just dig a little deeper, we're going to truly find who God is. That what's been given us isn't enough. That there's this hidden thing, that there's one more revelation that we need, that there's something out there that if we can just discover it, we're going to truly find the answer to our need. And what I want to encourage us in is simply this. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if we want to see God, we see him through Jesus. Period. 
If you want to look, if you want to discover who God is, what is God about, how do I know God, who am I apart from God, who am I with God, you look to Jesus and you look to who he is and what he's done and what he proclaims. We need not look anywhere else. And so the author is foundationally moving and he's saying, look, I'm going to lay this foundation first But not only is Jesus better than angels because he's a divine prophet, I'm going to move forward, the author is writing, and says that Jesus is better than angels because he's a divine priest. We continue on in verse 3. And it says right here, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That small verse right there has huge implications for the people of our day as well as the people of that past day. And so the first thing that I want to share with you is this, that the completeness of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave eradicates, okay, completely eradicates the necessity for the sacrificial system that has existed for hundreds of centuries. Now, I want to be careful on this, okay? Our need for the forgiveness of our sin is still there. It doesn't mean that we no longer need to be forgiven of our sins, but because of Christ's perfect sacrifice, we no longer have to move forward with the system that was set up in the Old Testament. And so to talk about that for a minute, and we're going to dive even deeper into this, may we remember that back in the Old Testament, that God dwelt with his people in the Ark of the Covenant, in the temple. But we also know that he dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And so, in order for God's need for the sins of the world to be atoned for, a sacrifice had to be given by the great high priest. One individual who could enter the Holy of Holies and make the offering. But what do we also know? That the Holy of Holies was separated by a massive curtain. And that was known as the temple. Just to kind of give you an idea, how many of you have ever been to a theater and you've gone up and you've felt that thick theater curtain? Okay? The, 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 the curtain was even thicker than that. And let me just give you an idea of what we're talking about here. In order to atone for the sins of the people, one individual could go in with the sacrifice. But here's the bottom line. If that individual wasn't purified through the ritualistic system that was laid out by the law, bad things were going to happen. Now, in this, we have to remember, God was so holy, God is so holy, that any impurity he can't be part of. And so what would happen was the high priest, one person, so let's just take, take a minute, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make a joke, but you're going to see this. None of you, O commoners, can go there, right? But just Keith and I can, because we're the high priests. Now watch this for a minute. It's Keith's turn to do it, and everybody looks, and Keith knows and says, Keith's a great guy. We're going to be Okay. And then all of a sudden, well, it's my week to do it. And you're like, have you ever seen Trevor on the highway and how he sins? And I'm like, we're in trouble, right? 
man, oh man, I hope and pray that he's done what he needs to do because if not, this isn't going to go well. But none of you can do that. And so in order for your sins to be atoned for, you had to depend on Keith or I. And if we messed up in any way, things went wrong. And so what would happen was the high priest would prepare the offering, prepare himself over an extended period of time. Tie a rope to him. He would go in and make the offering. Okay, so we're going to do this. We're going to kind of move forward. Hopefully, all is well. Seriously, but jokingly, hopefully I've scrubbed behind my ears. I am clean. I've done what needs to happen. And in order for us to have our sins atoned for, I will now enter the temple. I will go into the Holy of Holies, past the curtain, and make the offering before God. I've got a rope on, just in case I didn't wash behind my ears, and all of a sudden you hear me screaming in agony. I'm burning, I'm melting. Okay, Indiana Jones type thing. To where hopefully, if you guys are paying attention and you want me back, you pull the rope. And I get away. Now, in this, what I want to show you is that's the system that had been set up. But maybe remember that the reason it was set up that way was because God was so holy, God is so holy, that we are to approach him with awe and reverence because he has no part in sin. That's how we were to approach him. Think through this for a minute. How do we approach God today? We can approach him, and this is where we're going in this book, with boldness and confidence. No longer needing an intercessor, a great high priest, to atone for our sins. Because Christ is the great high priest, and we're going to read about that later in this book. And so we can come forward with confidence to the Holy of Holies, to God, without worrying about what's going on because of what Jesus has done. If we remember and we recognize and we continue to read the gospel account of Christ's death and resurrection from the grave, when Christ dies on the cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then bows his head and gives up his spirit, what happens? There's a great earthquake and what happens to the temple curtain? It's torn in two. Not only is it torn in two, but it's torn in two from top to bottom. To bottom. And the reason for that is, is that that sacrificial system is no longer necessary because the perfect sacrificial lamb, the great high priest who's better than angels, who's better than Moses, who's the best of the best, has laid down his life for us so that in our impurities and in our imperfections, we can approach God with confidence, not because of who we are and what we have done, but because all of what Jesus Christ has done. And so why turn? Why add angels back into this system? I want to read this to you. Just as the sacrificial system was set up to atone for sin in ages past, God sent his infinite mercy and love for creation. He has provided both a perfect high priest and a perfect sacrifice that was able to once and for all atone for the consequences of sin. Don't let your mind pass over this amazing truth. 
Not only did Jesus die on the cross and rise from the grave, but we no longer now have to rely upon a high priest to atone for our sins and hope and pray that that individual is sacrificially clean. You all don't have to stand outside. You all don't have to wait. You all don't have to wonder. Because Christ has brought that to all of us. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, sacrificed himself in order to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. It's done. It is finished. It is no longer needed. And so interestingly enough, when Jesus says it is finished, what we recognize is there's an aspect, a duality in what that statement is. It is finished. He is done atoning for our sins. And last week you heard me. And when I look at Christ and I realize it was my sin that put him there, that's done. But also in the referent, it is finished. He's saying there's no need for any of this anymore. We don't need high priests. We don't need to be separated from God anymore. And so we see not only that Jesus is better than angels because he's a divine prophet, Jesus is better than angels because he's also the divine priest. And then we continue on and we get into these verses 4 through 14. And this is the aspect that the author is moving toward for this point. And he says, Jesus is better than angels because he is the divine king. And then systematically what he does is he begins to work through statements that have been made that Christ encompasses back in the Old Testament that individuals would recognize and realize to show how superior Jesus is to angels. So before we get to that, what do we know about angels? Cherubim, seraphim. We see them come before people in the Old Testament. We know that an angel appears to Mary. And I don't know about you, but these things are majestic. We also know, theologically speaking, right now, that angels are warring for us against the demonic powers of our enemy. They're not to be trifled with. If we were to see an angel today, all of us, our eyes, would the radiation of their glory, we would bow in worship. And so what I want to do before we get into these verses is just to take a minute and recognize truly how majestic they are. How powerful they are. They are God's warriors for us. And the reason that I'm doing that is when we look at how majestic and powerful they are, and yet as we're going to discover in this reading how they pale in comparison to our Savior Jesus, who is the divine prophet, the divine priest, and the divine king. It should draw our hearts back to radiant worship of him. And not to belittle angels, but to look at them and say, you know what, we don't need them because we have Jesus Christ, our Savior. Interesting enough, let me take a minute. And uh, it starts off, and we get right into sort of this cadence 
Verse 4, it says, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And now watch. Statement. For which of the angels did God ever say? Okay, so you have these majestic angels. Let's just set these up. Here they are. They're awesome. They're unbelievable. But did God ever say to any of them the following statement? You are my son. Today I have become your father. Rhetorical question, question mark. Answer is no. Never said that about angels, but he did say that about Jesus. And so what I want to show you is when it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is a citation from Psalm 2.7. Now Psalm 2 is a messianic, kingly psalm. And what it does is it invokes the whole psalm as the Messiah the anointed one king over all. I would encourage you, if you have time, to go back and read all of Psalm 2. But it's a direct citation of Psalm 2-7. So you have these amazing angels, but yet what the author is saying, look, out of all of these, has God ever said this about them? You are my son, today I have begotten you. And then he continues on, or again, So another statement, I will be his father and he will be my son, question mark. Answer, rhetorical question, no. And so here when it says, I will be uh, to him a father and he shall be to me his son, this citation is from 2 Samuel 7.14 and it's referring to the house of David, specifically God's promises to David that his offspring should reign forever. Jesus is not just a king. He's the Davidic king. The one who fulfills all of God's promises to David. So think about this. Not only is Jesus better than the angels, but God is also saying, this is the Davidic king. This is the Messiah. And people would be looking and they would be saying and they would be thinking about, wow, angels are amazing. And we remember David. We remember what a great king he was. We remember what he did for our nation. But he's dead, and he's gone, and he's no longer here. And I'm not belittling David, but David isn't there. And so little by little, systematically, the author is saying, Cadence, let me show you how much greater Jesus is And then he says, and again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, that's pretty direct, but to help you out, let all God's angels worship him is a citation from Psalm 97, 7, and Deuteronomy 32, 43, which state that the Davidic king will receive worship from angels. So number one, there's the comparison, okay? Angels are great, but the angels are going to worship Jesus. But also, it's the answer to the prophecy that indeed Jesus is in the line of David, the Messiah. And so anybody reading this should say, whoa, wait a minute. This is true. This is right. We're looking in the wrong ways. We're looking in the wrong ways direction. Then he continues on and he says, 
In speaking of the angels, okay, so he, he, does it, he does it another way. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. And here, interesting enough, this citation is from Psalm 104.4, and it shows that while these angels who worship the sun are not beings to mess with, okay? Angels are big deal. Don't mess with them. But what he's saying essentially is, while they're great beings and not to mess with him, and the splendor of the angels stems from Christ's creative hands, Christ is the one who is over him. So these guys are great, but let me show you how much greater Jesus is. So watch the comparison. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels, winds, his servants, flames of fire. Now notice the transition. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. And so watch this for a minute. We continue on. And where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with all of the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is a citation from Psalm 45, 6, and 7. And what it is doing there is is extolling the Davidic king and only Jesus as the Davidic Messiah meets this description. Jesus is the only one who's able to meet the description that's cited there. And yet people are turning to angels. And yet we turn to other things. And yet we take a little bit of Jesus and when things don't work our way, we add things in or take away from what we've been given, wondering if what we have is enough. And right here, the author is systematically saying, don't turn to other things. And notice what I've been saying earlier. If you've been following along, I've been saying that Jesus is the Davidic king. And he is the Davidic king. But notice my main point. Jesus is not just the Davidic king. He is the divine king. What I want to show you in this next part is this is the transition that lets us know that not only is Jesus in the line of David, and not only is he king, but unlike David, Kingdoms will come and kingdoms will fall, yet Jesus' kingdom will remain forever. That's why he's the divine king. So we continue on, and we look. And it says, he also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Speaking of Jesus, They will all wear out like a garment. Great as David was, as wonderful as a king as he was, as much as he did for God, 
His garment has worn out. His time has come. He will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. Time to move on. Time to move on. Kingdoms will come. Kingdoms will fall. Countries will rise. Countries will fall. Leaders will rise. Leaders will fall. But Christ in the Davidic line, demonstrating indeed that he is the Messiah, his kingdom will never, ever, ever fall. But you remain the same and your years will never end. And I want to take a minute, I want to pause there for just a second because we read this and we look and we're like, oh man, we're getting close. Okay, great, he's almost done with his sermon. Awesome, wonderful. But just stop there for a minute. Not only do we have this amazing thing, right? Not only do we have the best of the best, but there's this fear of, I've got the best of the best, but for how long? How long will I have it until it wears out? How long will I have it until it's replaced? How long will I have it until they create a version 4.0 like they do with all of these phones? How long will they tell me I have the best thing ever and then six months from now tell me that it's not anymore because it's no longer relevant? His kingdom will last forever and ever. And there is no need to turn to anything else. Right here, you, O Lord, lay the foundation of the earth, and in the beginning, in the heavens, the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. It's a direct citation from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And this is, this is what, right here, okay, if you have your Bibles with you, if you'd like to mark them up, this is what, this citation right here is what moves Jesus from simply being in the line of the Davidic kingdom, okay? That has to be established to make prophecy be true. If Jesus isn't in the line of David, then he's not the Messiah. That's been firmly established. But the main difference here is not only is he in the line of, of the Messiah, in the line of David, But his kingdom won't end. And that's what makes him the divine king. That's why that statement above is that Jesus is better than angels because he's the divine king. And then lastly, we continue on, and he says, just to kind of seal the deal, to which of the angels, okay, did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? Think about this for a minute. Angels are amazing creatures. But the position of honor and prominence in a kingdom was to sit at the right hand of the king. God doesn't say, come over and sit at my right hand to any of the angels. But he does say that to our Savior Jesus. Demonstrating indeed that A, he has the authority, and B, he has the prominence that none other has. This citation, um, it's from Psalm 110, and it demonstrates the power and the authority that Christ has, as he will not stand up from the throne. 
that he has sat down on. He will not eradicate his throne. He will not leave it. He will not give it up. He will not be superseded. He will not be overelected. He will not be defeated. He will not be destroyed. Period. Until when? When does Christ get up from his throne? Until all of his enemies have been put under his feet and God says, it is finished. Go and collect your bride. That's it. Period. There's no revolution coming. There's no assassination attempt. There's no wonderful, amazing kingdom, but unfortunately Jesus just lives out his life and we have a hundred years of wonderful kingliness, but the next thing you know, he passes away. He is on his throne, he is ruling, and he will not stand up until the enemies of God are put at his feet and when they are, he will rise from that throne and he will come and he will collect his bride, the church, and establish his eternal kingdom forever. I don't know about you, but angels are pretty awesome. But when I read, so, and angles are too, just so you know. Gotta, I gotta have fun with that. I was looking at that and I'm like, I know somewhere it's gonna be angles, but angels are amazing. How much better is our Savior Jesus? And we're going to look at that and we're going to travel through this for the next several chapters. And so what I want to leave you with this morning is this. As a divine prophet, priest, and king, Jesus is better than angels. Why? Well, in this aspect, it's because of him we can enter into God's presence with confidence knowing that our sins are forgiven. We're going to move in that direction in the latter part of the book and recognize truly what we have in Jesus. But the whole point of this is to persevere. And so lovingly, what I want to encourage you in today is, for those of you that might be struggling in your relationship with Christ, for those of you that might have come to Christ years ago and said, man, this is going to be great, it's going to be awesome, I'm going to get everything that I want and how I want and when I want, and your life hasn't gone the way that you've planned. For those of you that are sitting there wondering, truly, can I trust in him? Because, man, when I trust in him, things don't seem to be going the way that I want. Don't turn to other things. Don't add other things in. Don't look to other ways to find gratification. And please don't look for other ways to affirm yourself in your sin. All you need is Jesus because he is the best of the best. And as we're going to discover in this book, we can forget all the rest. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we just thank you for you. We thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ and we thank you for the book of Hebrews. Father, thank you for the uh, tenacity of this writer. Uh, we don't know exactly who it is, but we thank you for the individual that was willing to go forward and encourage the people of God as they began to stumble and wonder if truly what they had in Christ was all that they needed. So this morning, Lord, I pray that uh, as we come and worship, that we would truly realize what we have in Christ. Realize truly, as great as angels are, how much better our Savior Jesus is. 
And Father, in that, I pray that as we go about our lives, that uh, through humility, yet confidence in Christ, that when moments would come, uh, when afflictions would come, when challenges would come, we would turn to you. But also, Father, when good things come, when we are blessed, uh, when you are doing things and, and the world is, is good in our eyes, that we would praise you for all the blessings that we've been given. Father, help us, particularly in a world that is challenging our Savior Christ, to with humility and grace, but with boldness, lovingly say back, we don't need anything else. We don't need anything else to satisfy our souls, to forgive us of our sins, to bring us a joy and a peace that the world simply cannot give because we have it all in our Savior, Jesus. And Father, with that, may we go out into the world and encourage other people, sharing the good news of the gospel, being salt and light to those that are around us. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. We ask these things in your name, dear Jesus, and we pray it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen.